what serves to break that stigma down is to humanize our own stories. And it doesn't mean you have to, you know, get up on a, on a platform and say it out to hundreds of people you don't know. Someone needs to deal with the stigma that is not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Sometimes we shame our own family members. We shame ourselves. The way to get involved is to go where the people are at. Don't wait for them to show up to see you. But you've got to step out of your comfort zones and you've got to walk into places that you haven't been seen so that the people in the community can be willing to come and see you. Welcome to Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I'm your host, Daniel H. Gillison Jr., NAMI CEO. We started this podcast because we believe that hope starts with us. Hope starts with us talking about mental health. Hope starts with us making information accessible. Hope starts with us providing resources and practical advice. Hope starts with us sharing our stories. Hope starts with us breaking the stigma. If you or a loved one is struggling with a mental health condition and have been looking for hope, we made this podcast for you. Hope starts with all of us. Hope is a collective. We hope that each episode with each conversation brings you into that collective to know you are not alone. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Devika Bashan, Dr. Napoleon Higgins, and Angelina Hudson to talk about stigma and mental health equity. Dr. Bashan is a pediatrician who is passionate about equity. She has lived experience with bipolar disorder and speaks about it publicly to help break stigma. Dr. Bashan is a former acting California Surgeon General and a newly elected NAMI National Board member. Dr. Higgins is a psychiatrist in the Houston area, as well as president and CEO of Bay Point Behavioral Health. He is also a past president of the Black Psychiatrists of America and past president of the Caucus of Black Psychiatrists of American Psychiatric Association of the American Psychiatric Association. And Angelina Hudson has been executive director of NAMI Greater Houston since 2022, where she previously served as vice president of programs and partnerships. She is active in the Community Health Equity Alliance, a broad partnership spearheaded by NAMI to improve access to mental health services for black African ancestry adults living with serious mental illness. Thank you all so much for being with me today. While we're now in the month of August, July was B.B. Moore Campbell National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, a time to focus on how we can break down harmful stigmas and systematic barriers that perpetuate mental health inequalities in communities of color. Because this is such an urgent and timely issue, not just now, but every month of the year, we wanted an opportunity to dive deeper into the causes, these inequities and uh, possible solutions. Today, only one in three black adults with mental illness receives treatment. People in the black African ancestry community are also less likely to receive guideline consistent care, less frequently included in research, and more likely to use emergency rooms or primary care rather than mental health specialists. These inequities are both caused and compounded by deep-rooted factors like institutionalized racism, intergenerational trauma, and economic barriers. At the same time, stigma and cultural attitudes can make finding solutions even more complicated. I'd like to start by asking all three of you if you could talk a little bit about stigma. What exactly is it? Why does it often disproportionately affect communities of color? And how does it impact mental health equity? There's so much to say about this topic, and I'm really, really privileged and thankful to be joining in this conversation with my esteemed colleagues. I'll start us off by just saying, I think, you know, stigma comes about because of something that we don't understand and therefore fear, right? So if we take the example of epilepsy or seizures, back in the day where we didn't understand what caused seizures, they were hugely stigmatized and attributed to causes like, for instance, spirits. Um, and now when we actually can pinpoint specifically where in the brain specific seizures arise from, they are no longer stigmatized or feared because we have language and an actual pinpointable reason for what they are all about. And corollary, um, 
you know, well-honed uh, treatments to be able to treat them. And interestingly, right, seizures went from the domain of psychiatry to the domain of neurology, where things are much more precise and knowable. Um, and so, you know, as that is an example, communities of color are in a position where often the way in which we experience mental illnesses um, can can look quite different. And it becomes another reason for us to be discriminated against. And that has led to the closeting of mental illness as well in communities of color. I'll pause there and see what my colleagues have to add. I only have one thing to add to that. Um, I often refer to stigma as the blame, shame, and guilt. Uh, it's the feeling that we have that deters us from reaching out for help for anything. Uh, most of all, uh, mental health conditions because we taboo them, we make them something that is either spiritual or demonic. And so because like what Dr. Bashan mentioned, we don't understand them, then we try to either pray it away, wish it away, uh, but we look the other way and don't reach out for help. So my message when I go out into the community is that education uncovers all of the fear and it dispels the, the fear and the anxiety that we have when we learn better. And so it's hard for many of our communities to believe that talking to someone for two and a half hours once a week for eight weeks is going to make a difference. But it makes the difference between life and death. It makes the difference between a quality life and one that is shrouded in fear and disbelief and sometimes leads to what I call dual diagnosis, you know, where there's not only the mental health condition, but also the self-medicating that goes with it. So um, I use myself and my story as a poster child for what it means to have the right type of information, the right support from the clinical community, uh, and then the support along the journey through NAMI uh, to, to make life uh, a greater success or at least the best life we can have. So and thank you very much, uh, both of you. And we'll go to Dr. Higgins next. But I want to make sure I come back to you, Angelina, for you to share a little bit more about your story, because I think it's very profound. And in each one of us telling our story, we help so many others from the standpoint of what your experience has been. And 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 you mentioned the uh, the speaking to someone uh, every two hours for eight weeks. Uh, I want to come back to that. And then, uh, uh, Dr. Bashan, you talked about the neurology. Um, that we, 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 we'll, we'll examine that a little bit in this conversation. So we'll go to Dr. Higgins now. Well, you know, exactly what uh, Angelina and Dr. Bouchon has spoken to, the issue of fear, uh, the issue of a lack of understanding, and then also the issue of just a lack of education. I know I've I was out at a community event this past week and um, at a black community event, and I was explaining an issue about depression in children and I uh, had a book on that. And the person that walked by said, well, I don't want my kids to know about depression. All right. And so in the frustration, when I tried to contain myself as a child psychiatrist, I'm like, kids face depression as well. They face anxiety as well. Just as Dr. Bouchon has spoken of, you can teach children about the mind. Just like you've got fingers and toes, your brain has parts to it, and it can have pathology as well. All right. But it's the lack of education, lack of understanding, which I think helps to drive this issue of stigma and fear in the community. That, And we have to really push and battle against that. You know, thank you for what you just shared in terms of the event that you just went to, Dr. Higgins, and and being a a, a child uh, psychiatrist, and and you know we have this other item that we have in 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 the nomenclature called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. How have you seen that uh, from the standpoint of the examination of stigma and the realization of what uh, uh, a young person is is navigating and, and experiencing. And definitely so. And with the ACEs, which is a study referring to looking at, you know, as it states, ad, adverse childhood experiences, we clearly see that you have worse outcomes the more traumas that you go through. And right now, and now across the world, but Right now in the black community, you're seeing an increased rate of depression, anxiety and completed suicides from the ages of five all the way through young adulthood. And that's why it's so important to make sure that we're educating in individuals about this, but also make sure that we're screening for it. And then I will go through, go and say that 
across the board, and this is for the world, we're seeing anxiety and depression hiring kids, and we're looking at the trauma of what occurred with COVID, where essentially the world was shut down. And so it's difficult to understand as an adult, but imagine as a child when you haven't seen that much life and all of a sudden life changed. I remember my daughter said to us once, she said, Dad, one day I went to school, came home from spring break, and the world was completely different. The people I had grown up with, the people that I knew, the school, the schools that I knew, because I've lived in the same area my first 16 years of my life, all of a sudden, all of those people were missing. And there were no goodbyes. There was no prom. There was no signing of yearbooks. There was no last day. There was no graduation. All of a sudden, missing, and you're not sure when the world will restart or if this is now permanent. So the sense of loss and the sense of trauma can occur. And people will say the kids can't see. Kids don't know about depression. Kids don't know about mental health. Whatever happens inside the home happens to the child. And no one's paying attention to the three-year-old or the four-year-old or the 15-year-old. We're all paying attention to our own internal issues, but the issues of loss as far as a grandparent, uh, the issues of loss as far as what they have with school, but also the issue of trauma. One out of four and one out of six young boys, girl, one out of four girls and one out of six young boys will be sexually traumatized before the age of 18. That's a lot of people that when you look at the ACEs study, are going to have a shortened lifespan because of the stress of that on their mental health. So it's something that we cannot escape. We have to talk about it. And so the, the kids can have an understanding and arm themselves and recognize when there's a problem and know when there's time to go and get help. And we can teach this at a very early age. You can teach, start teaching this in kindergarten. This is your head. There's a brain inside. This is how it works. And this is when it's good. And this is when there is a problem. And if we started that early and made that a part of our regular uh, education nomenclature, I think that we could do a lot to stop some of the stigma that is going on. Thank you so much. And and and, and we're going to segue to Dr. Bashan now. And, and then uh, this is just an incredible conversation. And um, thank you for that, Dr. Higgins. And Dr. Bashan, as I mentioned earlier, uh, um, your own experience with stigma is a deeply personal one. While you were serving as acting surgeon general in California, you very publicly disclosed that you live with bipolar disorder. Could you talk about how that affected your own view of stigma and anything it taught you about inequities in uh, what we, you know, casually say mental health systems? Yeah, absolutely. Um, big set of topics and happy to dive into those. One quick um you know, uh, corollary to what Dr. Higgins was mentioning around ACEs, as I was um, serving as acting surgeon general and then previously chief health officer at the office of the California Surgeon General, one of the things that we put into place was something called the ACEs Aware Initiative in California, which really helps to transform the way in which we think about healing from childhood trauma, right? So we know, as Dr. Higgins was saying, that it's two-thirds of the population who will end up having one of the conventional 10 and ACEs like abuse or neglect or growing up in a household with somebody with an untreated mental illness or substance use disorder. And, you know, it's, it's, it's holistic, right? It can affect our physical health. It can affect your growth, your development, your immune system, um, the ends of your uh, chromosomes that are called telomeres, which then can affect how long you live. But the equally important set of messages are that there is power to be had in knowing what your story has been and how then it can impact your health in the future to be able to prevent those health impacts ranging from, you know, heart disease to cancer. And we know that re-regulating your stress response using things like an anti-inflammatory diet, exercise, good sleep, mental health supports can really mean the difference in preventing all of these outcomes that are, um, given to us in terms of the associations in the literature, but by no means are ACEs going to be um, destiny. 
there's a lot that we can do after we've had ACEs to relearn um, stress biology in our bodies and in our brains to prevent us from um, suffering those health consequences at an early age. And then to transition a little bit to the stigma question. So at the point at which I decided to share my journey, it was August 2022. And at that point in the pandemic, as Dr. Higgins has alluded to, we had all gone through something deeply traumatic together. And some of us had suffered more than others. And it felt like it was the right time to let people know my small part, you know, in this, in this conversation, number one, to let people know that they weren't alone if they were struggling through something really traumatic and difficult. And number two, to let them know that there was a way forward that just like, you know, hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes, a thyroid condition, a chronic medical uh, mental health condition is also extremely treatable and something with which you can live and live well. And um, as long as you're careful about integrating lifestyle changes and treatments into your day to day life, you can you can start to think big and you can you can live out your dreams. And I really wanted people to hear that. I'm not the only person in the public eye with bipolar disorder, but I felt that it was important to share my piece of it because I wanted people to know that you can you be in a public um, position like um, California's acting surgeon general. You can aspire to um, being a parent, a um, caregiver, a partner. You know, I've been with my partner now for almost two decades and we've been through a lot of ups and downs together, including um, when I was first diagnosed and the role that NAMI played in that for us was really pivotal really helping my husband understand how to support me in those early years. Um, and as far as kind of learning about the systems, I think that, you know, my lived experience was very formative to who I became as a person, both professionally and personally. Um, and it definitely shaped the lens with which I approached policymaking for um, the ACEs Aware Initiative, for example, um, when we were thinking through the supports we needed to put into place for folks to really heal from childhood trauma and all of its sequelae, um, and to be really resilience-focused and strengths-based in the way that we were offering um, interventions and referrals and linkages. Um, and you know, as somebody who's been through the system, both as a pediatrician trying to uh, make sense of the different options for my patients who were suffering from specifically mental health conditions, being unable to refer to psychiatry and really having to learn um, a lot of the, the tools uh, myself to support my patients. And then also as a patient and subsequently a family member, um, really helping uh, folks to navigate the, the care system that is the mental health system. We know that there's many, many gaps. It can take months to years before somebody is hooked up with the right kinds of treatment, before we get the right kinds of diagnoses. My, my diagnosis, my correct diagnosis of bipolar, bipolar disorder took three years. And that's lucky, actually, for bipolar disorder. Bipolar 2 ends up having an 11-year gap between the first onset of symptoms and the correct diagnosis and set of treatments being offered. And that is much too long. We have a lot of work to do. You know, thank you uh, very much, first of all, for your leadership, uh, your public and, and, and a very profound leadership at the, at the, uh, uh, government level. Uh, and, and then, uh, uh, personally, your authenticity and you sharing your story. It really, uh, is helping and will continue to help so many. And August of 2022 was, uh, uh, an inflection point, uh, in terms of you, um, uh, providing, um, us with a, a view into um, your success and your success uh, in, 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 in your journey. I wanted to ask a, a question here. You mentioned your husband and how NAMI helped. And, 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 and we began this by talking about we need to do a better job in educating. Is there anything that you could share with us, Dr. Bashan, about what NAMI did in helping your husband as, uh, as uh, a family member um, um, uh, that could help our audience with the education that NAMI could possibly provide to them? It was pivotal. Um, 
at the moment at which I was diagnosed, so just briefly, that three-year period essentially consisted of me having symptoms of depression to begin with. And because I didn't have a family history of bipolar disorder at the time, and I didn't personally um, have my own history yet of mania or hypomania, um, I was diagnosed with unipolar depression or straight um, conventional depression and started on antidepressants, which end up meaning for the bipolar brain, um, basically a dysregulation and an activation and where you can become um, uh, triggered to experience hypomania or mania, which is when your brain is in an elevated state. So essentially three years of lots of different kinds of antidepressants were in the mix. And what at the time was being um, diagnosed as anxiety plus depression was actually hypomania layered on top of depression induced by the antidepressants, 20 different antidepressants in that span of time. Finally, I was on three different activating medications that induced a manic episode. And then suddenly it was very clear that this was not anxiety. This was actually hypomania now verging on mania. Um, and now I had a bipolar spectrum diagnosis and needed to be on mood stabilizers rather than antidepressants on their own. Um, and when we got that diagnosis, it was both a relief, but also it took us all by surprise. Um, and, you know, for my husband, who was not in medicine, so I was in medical school at the time. So I'd studied, you know, these different models of um, how the brain can go awry. But for him, it was really pivotal to hear from family members who had been through that journey to understand what does this diagnosis entail? What does it mean when your loved one um, has a hypomanic period of time or a manic period of time when they may be doing and saying and believing things that you've never known them to say and do or be or say? Um, and how do you deal in those moments? Because it's a, it's a very different paradigm um, than depression, right? It's it's a very different set of experiences for family members, more more so than even for the person who's experiencing it. Um, because the family members will live with the memories of what's happened during those periods, which might be fuzzy or non-existent, really, for some um, someone who's going through it themselves. And to not only know kind of specifically how to support me as I was coming through um, that unwell period, but also to hear from so many families that it is possible to walk through this really stigmatized and difficult to hear diagnosis um, and emerge on the other side with tools and um, and stories that will really help buffer you from getting sick again potentially in the future, um, and and that was really meaningful um, to him to be able to understand that from people who had you know walked for decades alongside somebody who had the same illness, even though it can look different, obviously in every person's life depending on who they are and what what's going on for them. Um, but just to gather that collective wisdom of, of family members was really powerful. And I know Angelina has um, has lived that same kind of an experience. And I wonder if you have anything that you'd like to share there. Absolutely. Um, so to your question, Dan, how did uh, NAMI help? It saved our lives. It saved my mind. Uh, as I was thinking about checking into Spring Shadows Glen, which is no longer open. <laughs> um, and it also saved my marriage and my family. So during the time that uh, the pediatrician was really asking me to wait, at first they were like, give him another year. Let's see if develop. you're comparing him to your daughter. You know, boys and girls are different. But I really knew at seven months that there was something really, really wrong. And... Um, and no one was listening. My husband was saying there's nothing wrong. My parents were saying there's nothing wrong. But I just knew it. And um, so finally the pediatrician said, you know what? I don't have a lot of experience with this case. I'll refer you to someone that you think might be a, you know, more um, specialized in, in treatment of children uh, with brain disorder. Or uh, we didn't I didn't know anything about mental health at that point. Um so it was just, we were just thinking that there was something wrong with the brain. Um, I found out about NAMI because I was going from school to school asking what type of programming they had for students like my child. And I would just go to the chair of these departments and just, and when they would show me devices or interventions or curricula, I would take pictures. And so one of the chairs of the special ed department 
And my children were not old enough to be in these programs yet. My son was four, but I was just so hungry for information. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, you've caught me. I'm trying to collect information to take back to my pediatrician because something's wrong. <laughs> he doesn't uh, mimic me. He's not developing. He, so I, then I started researching on brain development. It was just a shot in the dark. I didn't know what I was doing until he said, I'm a NAMI teacher. And we teach a class in Texas called Visions for Tomorrow. That is now NAMI Basics across the country. And he said, if you and your husband, and I'm like, oh, I'm, I've given up on him. Because my family was saying there's nothing wrong with my job. Uh, and so I remember Holly Robinson Pete once said that uh, she was ready to divorce her whole family because they wouldn't get with the program. So that's what I was going to do. I was going to divorce my parents, my husband, my siblings, everyone, because I knew that there were some answers. So in my very first class of NAMI, they introduced the emotional stages of response to trauma. The predictable, that was the first word, the predictable emotional response. And they explained that when families are dealing with one family member who has some sort of mental health crisis or behavioral health crisis, that many times the family members will be at different levels of response. So I had moved into the second level where I wanted to cope with it. I wanted to face it. I was angry at the world. I wanted someone to give me answers. But my parents and my husband were still in phase one. They were in shock. They were in crisis. They were in disbelief. And they shared with me in that very first class that I've just, if I just stick with it, they would eventually move to the second and third stages, or we might cycle up and down, back and forth, and begin to help one another, which is what happened. But because NAMI said that to me in the very first week, I felt like it saved everything. I'm married 30 years now, and it's because of that NAMI class, because I really felt an affront to my family, and I just I, I was in so much grief and pain that I was pulling the children into myself. It was one year later after that first class, my second child was diagnosed, and five years later, my third child. Now, you would think, you know, I'd be running for the hills and let's change my name and somebody else, you can have these children. The thought crossed my mind. But I, um, I just kept going back to that same class. It's funny how you can take a NAMI class multiple times. But your ears hear something different. I've read somewhere that relational trauma can only be healed relationally. And that's what NAMI does. You're in a group session. You're with other families. My first class had 22 parents in it, all different ages. But we were all hurting and desperate for answers. The class taught us how to talk to not only our nucleus family, but they taught us how to talk and explain what was going on to our extended family. They gave us uh, American Psychological Journal entries that we could take and share with our pediatrician <laughs> and say, this is what I think I'm seeing. This is what, you know, so we can open up a conversation that seemed more more educated, for lack of a better word. Um, I took the class five times before I became a NAMI member and then a NAMI teacher. I volunteered with NAMI for 10 years uh, as a uh, teacher and trainer before the local affiliate hired staff. As soon as they opened a staff position, I applied for it because I had been going to hospitals. I was trying to bridge. I felt that no one, I'm going to finish the sentence right now. I felt that no one should go through what I went through. I was educated, two degrees, married. We had great insurance and I couldn't get answers and I couldn't get help for like four, five, six years. So I'm like, why is it I had to drive 40 miles to find a NAMI class? There were no classes inside the loop of this huge metropolitan area. So I started going to um, Mental Health America meetings and NAMI board meetings, and I just started rallying. Uh, I got on the advisory board for Texas Children's Hospital, who I thought should have been the first people to give me the answers I found in this NAMI class. And I said, why aren't you doing this? So I, I immediately moved into this advocacy role that led to my journey as a, a NAMI affiliate a staff member. Um, and I promote now 
uh, the biopsychosocial approach, right? But I do this in Latino and black communities. My mother's Latina. My father is African-American. My, my husband's family is all African-American. When the doctor, and Dr. Napoleon, you know this, when you first start with some sort of neurological journey, they want you to do an inventory with your family. So they gave us these questions to go back and get our family history. Well, surprise, surprise. My husband's family said, oh, you think it's us? No, that's her people. And so then we went to another reunion and we went and talked. I think it was around Thanksgiving time. We tried to talk to my family and they said, we told you not to marry him. You married into that family and now you brought these illnesses into our family. And of course, it was in both families, undiagnosed, untreated. We had all kind of names for it. We had pet names for the loved ones that we loved. They kept introducing themselves to us every time we saw them. Uh, so there was a history there, but it was not documented, and it was not called anything clinical. <laughs> it was not treated. And so, and when people couldn't keep a job, we just shamed them and put them on a burner, on the back burner. We invited them to the family barbecue, but then they had to go home because they couldn't, they didn't thrive uh, in society. And so uh, that's, that's where my commitment to the black community came from. And the CHIA project is just such a breath of fresh air because um, someone needs to deal with the stigma that is not from the outside in, but from the inside out and throughout. Sometimes we shame our own family members. We shame ourselves and we don't reach out for help. We're worried about labels. We're worried, we're misinformed about what eligibility of special ed is. That's not uh, something that's going to prevent you from having a successful life if used properly. It's a, it's a service. It's not a location. Um, and you said something earlier, Dr. Bushan, you said um, that the ACEs should not uh, determine your fate. But I came from not the ACEs part and the trauma part, Dr. Hickens, but just plain organic mental illness that runs on a spectrum throughout my family's genealogy on both sides. So that's how I found NAMI, uh, Dan, and that's how I got involved. And so while I, I really appreciate the attention that we're getting, and so sad that it took a pandemic or a spike in suicidal numbers in teenagers, I'm sad that, and I grieve the fact that that's what it took for, you know, at least our county, our city, to get really on, on top of let's open up this conversation with our youth. But I still champion and hero for the families that go to church every Sunday. You know, they've got two family-headed households. You know, they're doing the best they can to make ends meet. They don't know about mental illness because no one's ever talked about it. But at the same time, they, they struggle with criminal justice issues. They have people on, uh, you know, with substance abuse disorders. They have people in and out. Of, of jail or prison, and they don't know why. And I think they need to be brought in as well when it's just like in their genealogy, it's just in their genetics, um, and they don't know about ACEs and the trigger of trauma because that's the understanding or the language of clinicians and providers, and we understand that on this side. But when you're just locking yourself in your bedroom at night, afraid of your son, or sleeping in your car so you don't have to listen to your spouse go on and on and on, <laughs> you know, you know, those are the real life issues that families are going through. And so when I go into the community, I start identifying the behaviors and not the clinical names or signs and symptoms, but just, you know, are you. So you meet people where they are. Yes. That's what you're talking about. Meeting people where they Absolutely. are, not where we want them to be. And that's what that's what your conversation has been about in terms of what you've seen. And that's what Dr. Bashan was saying about her, her partner, her husband, in terms of uh, him coming into the conversations and family to family, peer to peer and some of the other learnings uh, at, at, at NAMI and to be informed. So, you know, combating stigma is just incredible. And one of the ways and thank you so very much for what you're doing in in community, meeting people where they are. Um, I really do appreciate, Angelina, how, you, how you've talked about it because you're helping our audience very much. And, and to what Dr. Higgins said earlier about our young people and what's happening across the world, we've got our young people in, in a lot of communities are feeling hopeless and helpless, and we want them to feel hopeful 
Um, and, 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 um, we, we want to make sure we're doing the right things to do that. And part of that is combating stigma. So I want to talk about, uh, uh, one of the things that we're doing in the adult community, and that is in, in addressing, uh, and combating stigma and inequity through the Community Health Equity Alliance, or what we fondly call CHIA, which we have been spearheading since early this year. It brings together a diverse group of stakeholders, including advocacy organizations, support groups, academia, practitioners, and the faith community. Angelina, you just spoke about it. You've been especially involved through NAMI Greater Houston's role as a CHIA partner. What roles can communities and partnerships play in finding solutions that can be scaled more broadly? And then I want to start with you and then get the perspectives of Dr. Bashan and Dr. Higgins. Angelina? I think what we uncovered in the Houston area is that there were already just a great number of pastors, youth ministers, they were already engaged. They were already working to raise awareness in their churches. They were already preaching, sharing their own mental health conditions or those in the membership that were open and willing and willing to share. What Chia provided an opportunity in, in the Houston Harris County area through Dr. Higgins was an ability to lasso all of these efforts together and use our voice to make a difference in, in how we place a demand on clinics, hospitals. I've never seen so much attention, quite frankly. I'm from Houston, born and raised, and uh, I, I've never seen so much attention to the African-American community like I see now. And I even received a, a, a survey this morning from the city of Houston on how to repurpose a historical black church and a historical of one of the wards, third ward in our area, they want to know how to how to reuse that building to serve the community. And I, I think that a part of that movement to receive information from us to help us as a community has come from initiatives like CHIA, because we were able to pull together fraternities, sororities, businesses, corporations, uh, churches, faith leaders, but it was just this large, even social organization. CBOs, you know, community-based organizations that impact, you know, historically black underserved areas. And so because our voice now is so um, unified, it's making a difference. We, we are very much sought after for what can we do, how can we serve, you know, what can we do to make equity and open access to services in the Houston area. Thank you. Yeah, very good. And and uh, Dr. Bashan, and um, um, what are your thoughts? Um, and then Dr. Higgins. You know, the kind of work that Angelina's um, spearheading that Chia is all about is exactly what we need from a stigma reduction standpoint, because it is truly about going um to the community, with the community, in the community, right? And and those um those really pivotal um stories that are shared that really help to break down the stigma and help people understand that, you know, it is not this one two-dimensional um, caricature of who it is that's ill with um, a mental health condition or can be well after that period of illness. Um, it's really sharing those nuanced, um, multi-layered stories that we each have in our own lives of family members of ourselves that help to unravel stigma in the long run. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Higgins, um, can you speak to uh, Chia and, and would you also include your your thinking on 988? Well, you know, the, the fact is that uh, we, we developed a, a actual roadmap of how the community can engage uh, the mental health system, depending upon where you are, anywhere from emergencies all the way to, hey, I'm looking for a therapist. And we actually built out a website that, that also connects you with with those services. And we put 988 dead center in the middle of the map itself. Right. It's Ted Center in the map, 988, which is the hot the hotline that we use for all mental health concerns. Sometimes people will call, you know, especially with suicidal thoughts or they're having difficulty in their home. They don't know what to do with their family or their loved one. So you can call the number, but also you can text the number. 
And we've seen a huge uptake in the community of calls and responses to find a mental health person. And then also sometimes you may need to have emergency services. And we found that the the majority of phone calls do not require intervention by an individual, but when you do have an intervention and someone needs to show up to your home, many times uh, someone other than the police or the police person will show up with uh, with a mental health professional or maybe even show up without having a gun on them so that it's not con- continuing a fear of a threat. So the individual understanding that the person inside the home who's suffering is not mentally well. And then the police themselves can be very triggering, especially from the community where I come from. All right. So the point is to make sure that we have these access to resources, uh, you know, that are uh, outpatient substance abuse treatment, uh, inpatient and emergency services. And 988 is written on in the top front. I think we have 911 to the left and 311, which is for community services in the Houston Harris County area to, to the right. So that people know that they can access the care. And, and as Angelina spoke about, the importance of community, but also the importance of family. And one place that psychiatry in itself misses at, we so often focus on the individual. All right. Mm. And I tell people it can if your pinky toe is broke and hurting, I can guarantee you your entire body reacts to that one pinky toe because it is at the bottom of your foot, but is very much either stabilizing or unstabilizing of to the entire family. So no matter who it is, if somebody's hurting, that's a part of your body, it, it's going to hurt you. And too often we are focusing on the person in front of us, realizing as the entire family, they say, can I bring my spouse, my husband, my daughter, my niece, my cousin, or the whole family? But listen, the, the bigger the party, the, the, the bigger the party, the better the party. So if we can have as many people engaged as possible. But another issue that we're running into psychiatry is if I get admitted to the hospital, I get completely disconnected from my entire family. And that is something that we clearly have to look at uh, on looking at a different way to approach these things so that we can be uh, better, better received in the community. Because so often people fear things that are actually true. There are certain things that we're not doing well that we definitely need to improve so that people can better engage in the work that we do. You know, thank you so much. This goes to that old adage. If we do what we've always done, we're going to get what we've always got. So, you know, Chia is the opportunity for us to look differently and do differently. And it goes back to how we opened our conversation saying that we are a collective. And that's what uh, all, all of you have been describing. On a related note, what can we as individuals do to combat stigma and inequity? Um, and how can we get involved or become advocates, whether in our communities, our homes or our social circles? Dr. Higgins, uh, let's start with you. Well, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. You know, I work every day. I see patients every day. And this is where I see them at inside of this room right here. But it's also important for me to go out into the community. I need to go out to where the people are because I can only see or treat or hear one person at a time inside of these four walls here. But when I go out to the churches or I go out and me and Angelina spoke at a a large fraternity event uh, here in Houston a few weeks ago, when I go out and I meet the people, uh, it's easier to communicate the information. Also, I'm from this area. All right. So there's about 1.6 million black people in Houston. And I can guarantee you I'm about one degree separated from 1.5 of them. All right. So I'm not I didn't just show up here yesterday. I've been here my whole life. And if I don't know you in the room, I can guarantee you we're probably Facebook friends. All right. If I saw you in a room and you're black in Houston, we are connected in some matter of form. So because I'm from the community, because I do show up, because I've been showing up, I've been out here for years. It's a lot easier to be uh, to be in the community, but it's also easier to be accepted in the community, even though I have MD behind my name and I sit in four walls. The people know me. So the way to get involved is to go where the people are at. Don't wait for them to show up to see you. How are they going to believe you when they finally showed up to you? But if they've known me and somebody referred me and you're a good friend that I've seen or somebody from your hometown knows who I am and then they refer you, it gives a different level of engagement because you've been out there in the community and people know that you care. But you've got to step out of your comfort zones and you've got to walk into places uh, that that you haven't been seen so that the people in the community can be willing to come and see you. 
You know, I like the word care uh, because, uh, you know, we often say uh, here uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And what you're demonstrating, like you just said about MD behind your name, when you go out in the community, that's not what they're focused on first. They're focused on the fact that they can see you care and then becomes the MD. So thank you for sharing that. And and I'd like to go to Angelina next, and then uh, we will wrap up this uh, question with Dr. Bashan. Angelina? I've long said there's only one way to combat st- uh, stigma, and that's to take the, take the, uh, the you know, unveil it. Share your story. A face, a voice, a personal story. No one can uh, ridicule or hide or shame someone who's just sharing how they feel and what they've experienced. And so in every community where I've seen someone share their story, all of what they thought, all of the misinformation they had about the issue related to mental health, it disappeared. Because you put a face on it. We go to schools. We go to corporations. We go to churches. We go to synagogues. We've been to the mosque. We're we're about to go to a a Hindu temple uh, in, in Montgomery County. And we do this and we share the stories along with someone from that community. And instantly, everyone who's sitting in a chair or a pew, it resonates with them when it's them too. So I say if you want to do one thing to reduce stigma, share your story. Not only your story, but the story of your friends or family members, but don't use their name if they didn't give you permission to do so. But share these stories. Because the more we talk about it, I think it was Dr. Higgins who said, you know, even in elementary school, they brought in a big set of teeth and they taught us how to brush our teeth. They had germs where you turn off the light and they show a blue light and illuminate how many people have touched it and moved the artificial germs all over the room. But why not come into grade school and just talk about your mental well-being and how to maintain that? That your brain is built in such a way that if we don't take care of it, if we don't manage stress, well, guess what? We can have un- emotionally, uh, emotional or mental instability. And how do we prevent that? I think uh, starting to talk about it in general terms, but also share your story. Those are the two best ways to reduce it. Thank you so much, Angelina. And Dr. Bashan? I love what Dr. Higgins and Angelina have just shared, and I want to underline it. Um, you know, this, the word stigma comes from the Greek for tattoo, right? Back in the day, we had certain marks, literally brands on people's skin that would serve to mark them as other. Um, so these would be people who would live, you know, over here because they were marked as slaves or as criminals, right? And and when we think about what stigma does today, it really serves to otherize somebody and, and make them feel excluded um, and discriminated against and marginalized. And exactly as we were just talking about, um, the words that Angelina used were so beautiful. Um, you know, what serves to break that stigma down is to humanize our own stories. And it doesn't mean you have to, you know, get up on a, on a platform and, 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 and say it out to hundreds of people you don't know. It could be as easy as talking to, you know, a, an old friend of yours who maybe doesn't know that part of your story. Or talking with a neighbor, a cousin, a colleague. Um, these, these are experiences that are so universal. And when we hide them away, it not only serves to isolate us and shelter and, um, and, and really make those experiences full of shame. It also gets in the way of us moving forward as a society where we start to think of these conditions as, as common and as treatable as high blood pressure. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bashan. And, you know, I want to thank all three of you. And, and before we conclude, I'd like to ask you a question that we ask every guest. The world can be a difficult place and sometimes it can be hard to hold on to hope. That's why each episode we dedicate the last couple of minutes of our podcast to a special segment called Hold On to Hope. Dr. Bashan, Dr. Higgins and Angelina, can you tell us what helps you hold on to hope? You know, I think that learning to see myself as a whole and complicated person for whom bipolar disorder has been an integral, but a part of my overall journey has been really important in terms of my own um, resolution of my own self-stigma around it, 
And I think what gives me hope that I can be well and I can stay well, just as, as we use kind of that individual lens for the moment, um, is a deep recognition of what my struggles have taught me um, and what my struggles have allowed for me to do and be in this world. Um, and I think when I look around and I see so many people committed to this cause of stigma reduction, of increasing access, of decreasing inequities as we look around, that too gives me hope on a, on a collective scale. And I feel that the commitment to bettering mental health and equity um, has never been greater than it is today. And I think that also gives me a great deal of hope. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Higgins? You know, I would say what gives me hope is the work that we're doing right here, you know, where, you know, we're explaining the information, talking about the information. Everybody who hears this uh, will get, uh, will, will be a bit better. And I would say hope, you know, continuing to push the information uh, to continue to, the, to keep up the fight um, and also continuing to help individuals, knowing that when you make a breakthrough, uh, when you help somebody, when you see the light come on, where you see that uh, you, the, the better day, the brighter day for the individual in front of you that you were able to help, and then that to me, that helps yourself, which gives me just increasing hope to reach out, to help people and help them attain and be a problem solver. You know, this is the issue. Let me give you the answers. And some of that can be seeing a psychiatrist. Some of that could be seeing a therapist. Some of that could be lifestyle changes and sleep and sunshine. And how do you naturally boost the dopamine in your brain by having a good laugh with some good people around you? All of those things to me help to build the hope. And I appreciate being a part of this fight. Thank you so much. Uh, Angelina? Well, the tagline for NAMI is find help, find hope. And all those years ago, 23 years ago, when I was looking for that hope, I found it in the NAMI class that I went on to take uh, five more times. Uh, and back then, hope for me was uh, I wished internally that it would all go away. I really wanted all of this to be moved out of my life. And what I found through the hope that NAMI provided me, provided me is that better days could come, that if I just held on to what I was learning and applied it to my life in the way that I designed, because NAMI just gives you options and you, you sort of pick and choose how you're going to use this information. And so then the hope was actualized. You know, I now have an adult family and, and we, and I feel like we made it when I thought at one time we definitely would never make it. Uh, so I found my hope that way and that gave me hope. So I believe NAMI psychoeducation and support provides hope. But where I have hope now, People ask me, why are you still doing this 23 years later? I will always be affiliated with NAMI in some form, shape, or another because I still find families that are looking for that hope. And as I find people that are still looking for hope, I can only point them in the direction of where the hope can be found. And when they take that hope, sometimes they get a glimmer of hope, just like you mentioned, Dr. Higgins, because you listened to them, because you cared about them because you set and made space for them. And that's what encourages me today. The hope that I still find in the eyes of new people that bump into NAMI, because they are, are then opened up to the possibility that things will get better. And then they do. Thank you so much. You know, this, this has been an incredible podcast. And I will tell you that uh, I hope you will join us again because we need to keep this conversation going um, and, and make sure that we uh, dig into the conversation from the standpoint of uh, 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 equity and what that looks like as well. And I just want to say to you all, Dr. Devika Bashan, Dr. Napoleon Higgins and Angelina Hudson, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, from from the bottom of NAMI's heart to yours, thank you. This has been Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. If you are looking for mental health resources, you are not alone. To connect with the NAMI helpline and find local resources, visit nami.org forward slash help. Text helpline to 62640 or dial 800-950-NAMI, 6264. Or if you are experiencing an immediate suicide substance use or mental health crisis 
please call or text 988 to speak with a trained support specialist or visit 988lifeline.org. To learn more about the Community Health Equity Alliance, visit chia, C-H-E-A dot NAMI dot org. That's C-H-E-A dot NAMI dot org. I'm Dan Gillison. Thanks for listening and be well.